Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of The Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for your patience as I took a little bit of a hiatus this year from the podcast, traveling around Australia with my family for quite a number of months. It was completely amazing until we got back home, back into the hornet's nest of the special brand of COVID-19, which was 2021. So I hope wherever you are around the world that you're taking really great care of yourself and haven't been able to navigate this year just as well as you possibly could have. It's been, oof, we, I don't think we saw 2021 coming. I thought we, you know, we were all feeling like, you know, 2020 was the year that everybody want, was pretty keen to forget. But, um, well, here we are, and thank you so much for being here. So I want to tell you a little bit about Signa Darpinian, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified eating disorder specialist. Signa is host of Therapy Rocks, a personal growth podcast and co-author of two books. One is called No Way, as well as the forthcoming book, Raising Body Positive Teens, A Parent's Guide to Diet-Free Living, Exercise and Body Image. Both of these books were co-authored by Dr. Shelley Agarwal and previous podcast guest, Wendy Sterling. So you might like to go back and listen to that one from Wendy, where we talk about her plate by plate model, as well as the book, No Way. You can find out more about The Mindful Dietitian at the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au, where you can find all kinds of information, not only about previous podcast episodes, but also blogs, um, what other people are doing in The Mindful Dietitian community, our fantastic Facebook group, uh, and also courses and training that you might like to take to take your own growth to the next level. I'd also like to draw your attention to the world's first supervision hub for dietitians. This is called Dietitian Supervision Resources Australia, the brainchild of our fabulous colleague Tara McGregor from Practice Pavestones. If you're looking for more information about supervision for dietitians, whether you are brand new to supervision or whether you're a seasoned supervisor yourself, you can find out more at www.dsra.com.au. It's a fantastic new innovation built from the ground up. And it's been such a pleasure to be involved as a consultant to Tara as this whole process ha has evolved. Thanks again for being here. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Signa Darpinian. Hello, Signa, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It is beyond fabulous to be speaking with you today. Fiona, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So we are here to talk about a number of really interesting topics which we share uh, a passion for. And I thought maybe to start us off, I might introduce uh, your new book, which you co-wrote with uh, Shelley Agarwal, Dr. Shelley Agarwal, and Wendy Sterling, who was a previous podcast guest. So that was only uh, a couple of podcast episodes ago, and, and Wendy and I spoke about her plate by plate approach. And yeah. then, um, so you, Wendy, and Shelley wrote the book, No Way, and then- You've got another one coming down the line, which is called Ra Raising Body Positive Teens, a parent's guide to diet-free living, exercise, and body image. So with all of that in mind, how did these this sequence of books come to be? That's a great question. The sequence of books, you know, with no way, I was actually sort of trekking along by myself, just sort of submitting it to publishing houses. And I ended up doing this talk on connected eating, you know, attuned eating to the Stanford Eating Disorder Program quite a few years ago, maybe five years ago. And at the time, 
Dr. Shelley Agarwal, one of the co-authors, was on their team. And um, she approached me afterwards and she said, gosh, this topic, you know, about eating in a more connected and attuned way, an intuitive way, it's really cool. You should write a teen book. And I said, oh, but I am, I'm writing one right now. What, why would you like to be involved? And she said, yes. So it was really kind of fun. And then uh, Wendy, I had seen Wendy speak. We actually had her be a speaker for the San Francisco Bay Area IADEP chapter lots of years ago at this point. And after seeing her speak, I was like, this one, that's her, gotta have her. And um, she, at the time, had the plate by plate book in the works. And so her plate was metaphorically and um, literally quite full, uh, but I talked her into being a part of the, the teen book as well. And it ended up being such a more comprehensive piece than it would have been if it was just me as the therapist doing only, you know, the psychology of eating lane. And so, and then for the parent book, this is funny. I, I don't think that I've set this out loud um, in a recording, um, but I actually submitted a children's book idea that I had to our same publishing house, Jessica Kingsley Publishers, and uh, they're they're in London. And I I got this, it, it, so it, it's a, a children's book and it, it had to do with being um, a single parent. So a single parent uh, by circumstance or a single parent by choice. And the, the commission editor, you know, which is sort of the, the, the gatekeeper, I guess you could say, she wrote me back, I got this email and, and the answer was no. So I knew that there was a no in there, that this, that the children book, this children's book wasn't going to happen, but, um, but it was, there was, I was on my phone at the time and there was something really lengthy there. I'm like, gosh, I mean, no is a complete sentence, right? It uh -huh. could just be no, but I went home, got on my computer. She said, we were not, we're not so interested in the children's book at this time. Um, there, you know, they didn't feel like there was a need for that at the time, but do you have any other ideas? And I said, this is during, you know, uh, maybe I think at the beginning of COVID, maybe it was. And I said, I do, I do have other ideas. And what do you think about a parent book? Something along the lines of, you know, cultivating a friendship with food and body. And she said, yes. So that's how Raising Body, body Positive Teens came to be. Oh, so I, I, I got that. a no, right? I got a no and I got a yes in the same email. Oh. So that was fun. That is absolutely divine. I love that. And collaborations, uh, there's something really special about collaborations, isn't there? When you can all bring your own unique lived experience and professional experiences and bring them all to the table or to the book, as, as this case would be, uh, in ways which really enrich the content. And that, that came through just so clearly in this book. Oh, that, yeah, that's really well said, Fiona. That's how I felt too. So it, it's so interesting because in our field, as you know, we all have to know a little bit about everybody else's piece on the team, but it, it, I'll speak for myself, you know, my knowledge in, you know, of Wendy's lane or of Shelley's lane, it's limited. It's a bit superficial. And I have the utmost respect for the work you do, the work Wendy does and Shelley. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's a good reminder, you know, of knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. And we all had really different things to bring to the table. Yeah. It's like the world's best Venn diagram. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, where the, what we share in the middle is a sense perhaps of, um, uh, maybe Rogerian unconditional positive regard or um, providing a, a space where people feel witnessed and seen and heard and, uh, you know, a willingness uh, to collaborate, a willingness to bring our, ourselves into the process. And that may be what we share in the Venn. And then what we individually bring is not only uh, our own um, lived and professional experiences, but then also um, the modalities that we that we work right. within, and um, maybe specialities that we have. You know, right. for example, um, you know, Wendy and I are both eating disorders and sports specialists too. So of course, that podcast episode could have been five hours. Right. right. <laughs> And, and I actually, I mean, I, I use, I send the podcast that the two of you did together. It's such a great segment. I send it to parents all the time. I, I did that yesterday. 
It's a oh. fabulous piece. Oh, thank you. That's incredibly yeah. generous. And isn't that, isn't that uh, such a reflection of the communities that we mm -hmm. move around in? You know, people are yes. incredibly generous. Yes, we have an amazing community. We do. So I'm dying to ask you quite a number of things, but I'm going to, uh, one thing I noticed, I think it was maybe last week or the week before, is that you have a special talent and skill that I did not realise uh, until I saw this photo on uh, Wendy Sterling's Instagram. And you are a photo bomber. Oh, I'm a photo bomber. Yes. Yes, Fiona. Um, I'm I'm a little bit of a pranker, <laughs> and and a photo bomber, and it's it's hard because um, when you have a when you have a history of pranking, uh, the people who know you well, it just doesn't work anymore. So you really have to make new friends. Yeah. So step the so the photo. Yeah, you you have to step it up and really get creative. Um, and also, people don't believe you. You know. Um, anyway, that that's for another time, but. I did photobomb Wendy. She was getting ready to do her kitchen photo shoot. So the three of us were doing our photo for the back of the book, but then she added on the kitchen photo shoot, which I think is pretty common, right? To do a kitchen photo shoot as a dietitian. Mm -hmm. And the photographer and I had a plan ahead of time for me to sneak. So I literally had to crawl on my hands and knees around the kitchen island. <laughs> and she was there, you know, chopping and prepping and posing. And I, I grabbed a knife. Yeah. And she was a little bit scared. <laughs> She's a little bit scared. She's like, you should never play with knives. She was so, I felt, that felt like a win. It warmed my heart. It warmed her heart. Yeah. 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 I was a little proud. Yeah. Oh, so thank that... you for noticing. It's, it's a lot of fun. And we had so many laughs, you know, oh so it's, yeah. It had been I a think, long time since we had laughed so hard. Oh you know? my goodness. I think the caption said something like, lucky I love her. Lucky, exactly. I love her. Right. The the photo that was captured because I'm, I I feel sure that there was a sequence of them. The photo there was that a was sequence. Yeah, that was actually captured was you peeking up behind the kitchen counter with a fairly sinister look on your face. I've got mm -hmm. to say, yes. with the knife in one hand, and then Wendy serenely chopping a chopping. Right. I don't know what she was chopping. I didn't, I wasn't concentrating on what she was chopping. I was just looking at her thinking in 0.2 of a second, Wendy, you're going to jump out of your skin right. and be frightened the bejesus out of. I was yes. so proud of and you, Signa. Yeah, that thank you. Thank you. Because <laughs> it's, it's hard, like I mentioned, it's hard to prank when people are used to you pranking. So you really, um, there's an art to it. You've really got to space it out yes. and really distribute it to lots of people so that you don't overdo it. But, but thank you for noticing. It's, it's fun. It's, it's a fun hobby. Yeah. And at this moment in time, I'm feeling grateful that we're probably about 5,000 miles apart, more than that, perhaps. Right. Right. And yeah, cause there are things that, um, you know, sometimes people will accidentally tell me what they're really afraid of. Like, <laughs> anyway, you know, and then I'll not forget it and find a way to sort of sneak it in. Anyway, it, yeah, it, it can be a lot of fun. It grabbing a, a pen and making notes to never, right. ever tell you my greatest don't, fears. Don't, yeah, don't, don't tell me. Mm -mm. Right. No, no, no way. Yes. All right. So speaking of greatest fears, you and I both grew up uh in elementary or primary school and secondary school, mostly in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Now it would, it could well be said that the 1980s is pretty much a horror film when it comes to diet culture and the way it really accelerated and found its, you know, found its tentacles all through uh, that Ooh, particular yeah. kind of generation of, of mm -hmm. kids, um, teens, adults, and parents as well. So, um, I'm curious to hear a little bit about, you know, what your recollections are of the 1980s of the diet culture, like horror, that is that particular era. Yeah, that is, it's so interesting to think about because we were both teens at that time and thinking about things so differently. And so for me, Fiona, it was the late 80s, senior in high school. Um, I graduated in 1988, I was 17 years old, and I distinctly remember the the diet era was fat free and it was just this craze 
And I remember my friends and I just, you know, I, you know, I, I don't have complete clarity of mind, but my recollection is just eating these fat-free cookies and just, you know, eating them, overeating them, which nothing wrong with overeating, but the overeating, this kind of overeating was different. It was the kind of overeating that happens when you're just, you're chasing the satisfaction that you're not going to get from the food that you're experiencing. And so it, it was, you know, and at the time, of course, I did not know what I know now. I didn't understand how important fat is and how much it has to do with satiety. And, and it, you know, I think it taught us a lot. At least it taught me a lot about satisfaction and being satisfied with food and not, not only it being a physical stopping place. So stopping it just enough or stopping it satisfied. And by the way, I don't know how you feel about this, Fiona, but stopping it just enough or it's satisfied is highly personal. Yes. So what that, whatever that is for the individual. Mm -hmm. um, so it's physical, but it also has this emotional counterpiece, you know? So it's like, you can, you can have enough to eat and feel just fine and feel satisfied physically, but not be satisfied by the choice that you made. Not, you know, ha have it be lacking, you know, pleasure. So I learned a lot about the importance of satisfaction and fat. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this because, uh, I mean, I still think we do a lot of that, obviously, reducing our food choices to nutrients only and leaving out important aspects of our relationship to food like pleasure. Um, so I, I know, I just remember for me, it felt like I, I really saw it for the first time in the 80s. It's really interesting the way you um, clarify what it is that was lacking uh, and naming the particular nutrient of fat as being notably absent across lots mm -hmm. of different products. So whether that was cheese, ooh, ooh, oh, ooh, gosh. like, ugh, oh. you know, ugh. Um, oh, you know, like rice, cr rice crackery, corn thins, which by the way, are delicious right. with a high fat topping on them. Right. Like, right. you know, some, some butter, some, some avocado. I imagine they could be. Well, sure, but that's yeah, not, but be. that's not how we were eating them. Mm -mm. So that oh, no. isn't our last frame of reference. We weren't eating them with any added fat. No. Yeah. Interesting. I haven't thought of that in so long. Yeah, and the cookies, the the sweet kind of cookies that had that really funny texture to them, oh. and and then the food labeling was all around guilt and goodness and right. moralization and yeah, it was really uh, beginning, or at least you know, I mean, I wasn't paying attention then in the same way, but it really <laughs> felt like a starting place for is is that does that feel true to you too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and the, yeah. and the witnessing of how other people were interacting with those foods, mm -hmm. I think was really poignant. So as a, um, as a child and teen, you know, witnessing people in my family, um, you know, engaging with those foods in ways that, uh, felt like it definitely had a, a moralization to it, or that had the, the that introduced the dichotomous kind of belief, mm -hmm. beliefs yes. that was so, that are still very prevalent, but, you know, definitely, um, you know, planted seeds back then around good, bad, right, wrong, should, shouldn't, naughty, mm -hmm. nice, must, mustn't, mm -hmm. and all that kind of language, which becomes really internalized from surprisingly young ages. So I think right. it's, it's, um, people's lived experience and certainly, you know, mine to some degree, whilst also noting that as a smaller bodied child and teen, that, uh, that I was more witness to as opposed to recipient of direct food and body shaming or, right. um, or, or uh, the insistence that, that, that I must eat in a particular way. A and also what that has really taught me is that witnessing has an impact mm -hmm. you know yes. seeing well what other said. people are doing you know that has an impact well that, said. that it might not be the same impact in fact it's not the same impact as being the recipient of criticism that being directed at you that is that's a different felt sense it's a different um way that messages are internalized mm. and and you know the the witnessing still has impact 
Right. Exactly. And it can be vicariously traumatizing. Right. Right. And it's interesting because I I haven't thought of what you said in a while, this dichotomous thinking, um, good and bad, black and white, and and how dichotomous thinking um, as it relates to food is is so disembodying. It disconnects us from our body's wisdom and gets us making our food choices from what I call the chin up, you know, from the, um, you know, from our mind versus all of our ways of, of knowing, you know, our body's wisdom, I guess you could say. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This, this kind of sense of, of disembodying also then, um, almost strengthens that mind muscle and Mm -hmm. leads us to believe that if only we can think our way through things, if I know I could solve this problem of food, solve this problem of my body. Um, and that, that becomes very pervasive if we're exposed mm-hmm. to that, especially early in life. It becomes pervasive, even alongside having more positive experiences. You know that that embedding right. from the younger years can be, uh, you know, harmful in ways. I think that we're seeing now. Um, yes. Yes. You know, in in today's parents, which kind of brings me to the next part that I wanted to kind of lead us into, and that is that your book you know, you will be really speaking to uh, parents of teens today who were probably or most likely raised in the 80s. Most You're exactly likely. right. You're exactly right. And and of course it can vary a little bit, but I, I think you're spot on. And I think we, most parents today mm-hmm. are are what we now call Generation X. And what I know about Gen X, I believe, is they would be parents today that are 41 to 56. Mm-hmm. That's, gen, that's approximately Gen X. And you're right, you know, they're, and they're coming to us with, with this trauma, with these, these scripts and these, these stories uh, that, like you said, were... Um, were brought in at a time of life when, depending on the person, right? We didn't have the abstract reasoning to know that like, oh, that's just crazy. We don't need to do that. And so it really, really gets stored at a place that's so subconscious, you know, then, and, and I think the parents today, they don't, you know, I don't, and of course everybody's different, but they don't always have the awareness to know that the script they were told when they were younger was built on a faulty premise. And so I, I think a, a lot of what we see is the lack of awareness about their own relationship to food and body, you know, just even taking time to reflect on what that might even be. What is my own relationship to food and body? Where does it come from? You know, so I, I'm sure you've heard stories like this, Fiona, but it's not so uncommon for me to have a woman client in her early forties who experienced gender wounds, for example. So she was at the table as a child, being fed food that was different as the female than her male identifying siblings. And that message is pretty clear, right? There's the conditioning. We need to look pretty and look good. Um, We are seeing, you know, females are seen with their eyes, with our eyes, right? Not our heart. And so there's a, a lot of unlearning to do there. Yeah, uh, particularly when we um, are aiming to raise uh, kids and teens who feel good in their bodies and, and noticing mm-hmm. the, the myriad of different factors that are that are impacting our young people today, you know, through media and social media and right. the influences are really different. And I think I mean, my personal experience has been that, you know, really trying to navigate this new world alongside unlearning right. all the stuff we were handed is really tricky. It's really tricky. And it makes me think, I mean, obviously there's diet culture to blame, <laughs> right? Um, but also a, a big difference that I hadn't thought of till you just said that is the culture of busyness. Yes. We have a different culture of busyness now than we did in the eighties. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, Fiona, but I had a 30 minute talking time grow, you know, when I was a teen, I, um, you know, I was able to go to and fro on my bike and just 
you know, it, it just, it, it wasn't there, there was a lot more autonomy, you know? Um, and so the culture of busyness, I suspect also compounds things. So we're seeing parents that might not be awake and aware of what their own relationship is to food and body and whether or not that's the relationship they want to have, uh, let alone how they might be extending that out to their, their child or their teen, but then add to that the culture of busyness and how that may keep somebody from reflecting or taking the time to think about how they might want to be different. Yes. You're so spot on. I think that the, um, you know, as the years and the decades have rolled along, you know, the demands on uh, individuals and communities has really shifted, hasn't it, over the it has. over the decades? And so I'm really curious to ask you, when in your practice as a therapist, when you are seeing parents who are coming to you really wanting to work on this stuff, because there's a difference between right. uh, maybe a lack of awareness or not wanting to or not seeing sure. it as an issue, sure. and then parents who do present because they're like, I want things to be different for my kids maybe and maybe for me too. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about what you notice in your practice with the parents who, who seek your help? You know, it's an interesting question because our hope is that raising body positive teens will help reconnect these parents to what their body already knows how to do, but they may have forgotten. And we hope that it will give them a point of reference. You know, because Wendy says this, and, and I love the way she says this. It makes so much sense to me. She says uh, pretty often, you know, we have lost our way with food boy, and body image, but we've lost our way. And we have as, as a culture. And um, so that's what we mean by, you know, giving them a point of reference. What does it even mean, you know, to trust your body's wisdom, to eat in response to your body's wisdom, to have self-trust around your own food or to trust that your child knows what to do with their food. So I think the starting place is just a point of reference. And I know that, you know, we're in the field of eating disorders. And so we're studying this all the time for 20 plus years now. And so we cut, I mean, I don't know about you, Fiona, but I sort of forget that this isn't everybody's life's work, right? We're in a bit of a bubble that way, but we're hoping that it, that, that the book brings an awareness, um, and, you know, gets them think, brings an awareness that then gives them a choice because parents, they, they hold a lot of power, you know, and as we know, being parent ourselves, um, you know, this idea of do as I say, and not as I do, it does, it doesn't quite work. And I often say, you know, just to kind of lighten things up a little bit, you know, ever since I had a child who's now 12 years old, I, I noticed, you know, that since that happened, it's not just the Cigna show anymore. Right. <laughs> my, my, it's not just the Cigna show. My choices affect my daughter, you know, uh, in, in many ways. And so parents do have a lot of power. And what's really cool is if, if this, um, if this point of reference helps them to become more awake and aware, then make a choice about how they might want to be different with their relationship to their body and food, then it's just really cool to think about the whole ripple effect. Yes. that it would have with the entire family system. Yes, I love that so much. My goodness, the ripple effect on the family system. So not only our immediate family, but then also extended family as well. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't believe that anybody lacks capacity for some kind of change, even sure. the generation above us, for example. Um, you know, in some ways we're in a bit of a sandwich, aren't we? We've got we an are, older yes. generation who were, say, the adults or the parents of the 80s. Right, when the we boomers. Were kids. Right. right, yep. Mm -hmm. Right, the boomers, right. right. Who, who had their own kind of evolution of diet culture introduction and very gendered um, yes. upbringings, you know. Very um, gendered. You know, so, that, so there's that too is learning about, um, the environments in which we were raised as a result of how our parents were raised. Exactly. And the transgenerational trauma that could come right. through food, eating and bodies. Right. Yeah. Yes. The other thing that was really occurring to me as you were speaking is that it's really hard to trust our kids with food and eating and their bodies to grow in a way that 
is destined or in a way that right. that's designed when we don't trust ourselves. Exactly. Really exactly. It really does. I mean, as we know, it starts with us and it extends out from there. So it's, it's easy to imagine, just like you said, if, if we don't trust ourselves with food, how are we supposed to extend that out? You know, and we see a lot of parents not trusting their kids with food and it's certainly understandable. Um, but it, it, it also, I think is a great time for change, you know, and, and I, I think the pandemic has really illuminated and sounded the alarms for what people in the eating disorder field have, have always known. I could not agree more. It really has sent up the flag, hasn't it? For, it has. For, it has. What needs to what needs to be different and as, what needs to be healed, right? What needs to be healed? Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. And that is all around our relationships. I don't know yes. why. I don't know why I put emphasis on on ships there. <laughs> our yes. relationships with each other, food, with eating, culture, right? Um, our yeah, who, who we are as humans. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we say in the book quite, we bring up this idea of friendship with food and there is a lot of similarity and a lot of overlap. You know, it is, um, it, it is a bit of a friendship and it has similarities, you know, because, uh, you know, it, there's so many layers. So we're not clones of each other. Uh, there are bound to be times that we're not so okay with each other. But if we treat our friends well, for example, even when we might not be liking them so much, uh, it's going to be a quicker return to that baseline relationship we have with them. And it's the same with ourselves, right? There are going to be times that we don't like our body, but if we can find a way to treat it well, even when we might not be liking it, again, there's a quicker return to that baseline relationship. Mm. I'm just going to let that land for a moment because, you know, coming back to coming back to baseline, it reminds me of the nervous system, you know, that ventral vagal mm -hmm. energy that um, that helps us to feel connected and safe and, mm -hmm. um, and in touch with our innate wisdom. Yes. Yeah, so switching gears a little now, Signa, into arguably – and I say arguably because there were so many chapters that actually I loved. This was my favourite. It's one of my favourite topics. Um, and any of my supervisees or students or uh, probably even my kids actually will know this about me. Uh, chapter nine is called The Benefits of Boundaries. Ooh, love boundaries. Oh, love, so love, 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 love. So I'm so curious about this because it is, it was, I think it was such an important chapter. Like it really, bound, it almost bound together all the other, all, all the other chapters in a way. It's like, without this, you know, uh, we, you know, yeah, it was just vital. It was absolutely vital. So I'm so curious, what was it about this particular topic that needed to find its way into the book? Fiona, I feel the same way about boundaries as you do. And it was just this, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, at, at first, when I thought of having a boundaries chapter, and I'd actually really, um, I was a little bummed out that I didn't think to do it for no way as well. But I just knew that we needed a boundaries chapter because in my work, as I'm sure you see in your work, it's it, to me, it's like the domino that hits everything else. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know, you know, the way we do anything is the way we do everything. And so at first, the idea of a boundaries chapter seemed sort of random and it didn't look very good in the beginning, <laughs> but I, but in the end, I really like the way that it turned out and I'm so glad that you like it too. And here's, here's where I was coming from and tell me what you think about this. Um, so many different layers to boundaries, but for starters, I think in terms of, okay, you know, if we have this pattern, for example, of saying yes to things that we want to be saying no to, so kind of taking care of other people at our own expense. Well, then that's bound to dysregulate our emotion, right? So we're going to be out of integrity with ourselves. And if we're out of integrity with ourselves on a regular basis because of this, well, we are going to be more likely to communicate through a behavior. 
Now, the particular behavior that I'm talking about is the one that we treat, and that has to do with eating difficulties. So for example, if somebody is saying yes to something they want to be saying no to, and it dysregulates their emotion, and they're not, they're not speaking truth, that dysregulated emotion might get transmitted to restricting food, for example. So you and I both know that restricting food not only restricts the food, but it restricts emotion as well, right? And so it, it, gives, it gives the food um, more of a job outside of, you know, what we hope our relationship to food to be about, right? And so the topic of boundaries has always been really interesting. And by the way, I mean, I'm just fascinated by it. And I definitely, it'll be a practice for as long as I live, I'm, I'm certain. But the thing about boundaries, and I don't know what you think about this, Fiona, but I always hear, you know, oh, you got to have good boundaries or here, he or she or they don't have good boundaries. But, you know, a couple of years ago, I started thinking back, like, what are they? What is a boundary? It gets thrown around all the time, but I feel like it's sort of lost its meaning. Mm -hmm. what it, what it, what's the starting place with a boundary? Mm -hmm. And so I started to really research it and interview experts on boundaries and do my reading and practice it myself and in sessions with my clients. And the things that, that I came up with that you'll see in the chapter is that, first of all, again, we're back to the parent, right? So developing good boundaries starts with the parent. But what if, what if just like with the diet culture example we gave, what if they weren't given a lot to work with? What if they were taught to not make waves or to be good or, you know, they, they learned early on to dim their light? Well, then how are they supposed to, again, extend that on to their, their child and their teen? And so that's something to think about to begin with, because not all of us were exposed to a household that had good boundaries externally so that we could internalize them very easily. You know, um, an example would be if a, if, if a child was raised maybe by a parent who was out of balance. Um, so that's one part to think about. And then the second piece that I've, that I've thought a lot about and read a lot about is like, well, a starting place for a boundary is you have to know what you value. You have to know who you are and what you value, because if you don't, you'll be flailing around and not even knowing what your boundaries are. You won't, you won't have any language to communicate to other people what it is that you need from them. And just because you communicate, it doesn't mean you're going to get what you want, although that'd be kind of cool. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's, it, it, so it's not about that, uh, but you, you won't have language. And so an example that, that I was thinking about this week was like, okay, so what's an example? How do we break this down? So I'll give an example of a value an important value to me, and maybe you have an example, Fiona. So a value that I care a lot about is reliability. So, and, and by the way, defining a value, I'm going to borrow from acceptance, commitment therapy, act therapy, uh, values are heart's deepest desires for how we want to show up as a human being. So reliability yeah, is, you know, doing what I say I'm going to do. So I, I want to show up that way in my caseload, in my work. I want to be dependable and consistent and reliable. I want to show up that way as a mother. Um, I want to show up that way in my life in general. It's an important value to me. So it's good that I know that. But, but then maybe how I might communicate that through a boundary is uh, in my work setting, it might look like my particular cancellation policy. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, you see, so you yeah, see, yeah. Yeah. um, and, and, and my cancellation policy, here's, here's one way I think of it is, you know, it doesn't really have to do with other people it has to do with me. Yes. My cancellation policy for what I know about me right now, um, is a certain way. And maybe that'll change. Maybe as I grow and evolve, it'll look differently in a year from now, but for what I know right now, that's my particular cancellation policy. And then part two of it is, okay, so what if a client, you know, doesn't respond to it? Or, you know, uh, what, if, what, if, what if your boundary isn't honored and it's disrespected or somebody's not in alignment with, with your boundary? Well, then you have to decide what to do after that, right? Is it a situation where maybe you need to release this individual and do your best to not take it personally? Or is it, 
you know, is it something more familiar, familial or a, a friend that you have all this history with and you, are, you want to keep them in your life? Well, if you decide that you are going to keep them in your life, then what might you put in place to be a little more protective? Are you going to keep them in your life, but have them a little bit at arm's distance? Um, are you not? And so anyway, that's a starting place for boundaries. What do you, do you have an example of a value and a boundary? Yeah. So I, um, I as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, I, I've done kind of a values uh reflection activity numerous times. I'm a big fan of acceptance and commitment therapy as lots of people will know. Um, and values for me have very much come back to, you know, the a linchpin for um, how we can find a sense of not only direction and meaning, mm. but also what makes things worth it when they get hard. Yeah. You know, so yeah. for example, when I'm working with people in eating disorder recovery, it's like, what will make this intense discomfort worth it? Right. You know, what right. can I come back to that feels that that is heartfelt? That is mm -hmm. not necessarily um, what I should think is important. You know, so more led by the heart than than the head. And I think that can be really challenging when we have maybe been raised in a particular way. Um, sure. And and we feel differently. We feel that you know what feels really meaningful for us differs and what that brings up for us in terms of acceptability perhaps or lovability you know it can get pretty complex the one i was thinking of for me that is a little bit more recent one i've got to say is um around i don't know whether i would name this as an actual value itself so so i'm just going i'm going to talk aloud to you and mm -hmm. see if we can kind of pin it down but a high consent process is really mm. important to me. Um, so from a personal perspective, as well as how I conduct myself in the world. So even from, for example, with, um, you know, our interactions, for example, you know, arranging this podcast coming together and or with or with clients or with my kids or with my partner or, you know, with, mm. with friends or family or whoever, like, you know, speaking very broadly here is checking in with people not once but then also repeatedly as well because a one-off one-off consent i don't believe is kind of real necessarily you know real true consent um and how i know that my boundary has been crossed in terms of my value around consent is I get a very, um, I definitely get a strong fight, flight, sympathetically oriented response in my body. Mm -hmm. I get like a rising warm sensation in the body. Um, I yes. have racing thoughts. My breath gets shallow. My heart starts racing. It's so somatic. It's so somatic. It's, it's, so it's pretty somatic. incredible, isn't it? It's right. like an all over body reaction. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. And that's how I know. And okay. so uh, for me, I have developed some practices where I'm able to notice a name and to use the resources, the resource of my body as a, as a way to bring myself mm -hmm. back into a, uh, a more of a state uh, th that I can then think more clearly and then plan the the what next you know in terms mm, of what I to really do like what it. not to do whether to mm -hmm. you know lean in whether to lean back take a break take a breath um or whether mm -hmm. something requires a bit of action sure. um so that was a bit of a, a long-winded um explanation of um i haven't actually named consent as a value but i don't know i i, I know, really I like personal, it isn't it i really like it and and i uh, there's, there's a, an example in the chapter also that you're, you're making me think of that I sort of forgot about. Um, and it's, I've been bringing more consent into the work that I do as well. And the way that I see it showing up lately, and I really like it. I, I don't know. I mean, I think this is where it's coming from. Um, the example that I brought up in the chapter, um, it was a made up example, but it, it's like um, how it feels when somebody gives unsolicited advice. Oh yeah. 
And it just feels like such a boundary violation. And a colleague of mine says, you know what, unless someone's asking you directly for advice, they probably don't want it. And so I started thinking about unsolicited advice. And in our caseloads and the work that we do, it's sort of interesting because we have people that are actually coming to us to seek advice, right? So that gets a little bit tricky, but what I've been doing lately and making, getting more in the habit of doing it feels so in alignment is say a client brings forward a situation that they are dealing with in that particular week. Um, I'll listen to listen. I'll do the best I can to listen without listening to respond. Mm -hmm. And then I will take a pause and ask them, how would you like me? How do you want me to listen to you? Or how would you like me to respond? Did you just need to vent? Did you just need to to process? You know, the brain is the brain is problem solving right now. Did you just need to process and say that out loud and vent? Are you looking for feedback? Um, what did it? What is it are, that you're looking for? And um, I just it feels a lot better than the way that I used to do things. Even though you know our therapy practices are set up by design to give advice, I I kind of don't like it. I like getting into the practice of asking, how would you like me to listen? What are you looking for before I give it without asking permission? Mm. And by the way, that's a little hard sometimes because sometimes I'm talking at the bit and I'm like, ooh, 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 ooh. And so when they say, just want to process, just want to process, just want to be, I'm like, oh, gosh. But you know, I mean, but I I have some good advice, right? (laughs) You know, so you're just like, "Uh uh-huh, okay. And you know, sure enough, there's, there's always, there's better timing. So, I, I mean, you know, oftentimes our timing can be as important, if not more than what we say. Absolutely. I love that example of checking in with the how, how would you like me to listen? Because often we right. think of listening as being an action that's a what, what mm-hmm. I'm doing as opposed to how I'm doing it. And as you and I know well, um, you know, listening is an active, very engaged, very um, dynamic process. And what you've really highlighted there, which I absolutely love, is that it's a it's a how and that in checking in with somebody around how they would like to be heard. Even when you were explaining that, I was thinking, wow, if I was that client, I would feel very I would feel very witnessed, like very, very valued. And yeah. Like what I had to say was really important. Hmm. Hmm. Really. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I had the experience early on as, as a marriage family therapist intern. Um, I remember being in this group consultation and I was presenting a case, but before I presented the case, I was asked, how would you like us to listen to you? What, what are you looking for from the group? And it just, it, my, my brain exploded, which it shouldn't have. I mean, and, and, and I didn't, I did have that experience, but then I, I don't feel like I did it so much in my practice, but for whatever reason lately, um, consent in that particular way has been coming up for me as well. So I'm, I'm with you on that. It's really reminded me, Signa, that, um, I've got to say that the how would you like me to support you or how would you like me to listen if i think about it for me it's been a more recent um uh, you know engaging in that through supervision like one of mm. one of my teachers friends colleagues tara mcgregor who mm. also a previous podcast guest but is a very very well known here in australia as a dual therapist and dietitian um she she's probably I would say that she, it, it's been Tara Tara's teaching it's been instrumental in how we seek consent right at the beginning of a supervision session with our supervisees mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and and the how would you like me to support you how would you like, I'm going to add that how would you like me to listen today what it is Ooh, that you yeah. most need from me today so for any dietitians that are listening you know bringing this into your supervision so the person that supports you actually be really important yeah yeah and even that piece of you know um would it be okay yeah if I gave you some feedback if would it be okay if I gave you some advice but really meaning it and um I'm I'm so it's so empowering to even have a client say I'm not now you know I'm okay okay you know 
All right. Mm, and ch- and it, it's a practice. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a practice. Um, I, I don't always want to not give the advice, but, uh, but it, it, there's something that feels really good about it. Oh, I hear you. In the moment, it's the, the urge is so strong, but then it can afterwards, be, right. it can be, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it can but be. then afterwards, it feels like honoring, you know, honoring the uh, needs of the other person and prioritizing mm-hmm. that, um, you know, yeah. feel, feels so important. And and one more thing, Fiona, that I think is important about boundaries, and this was my lived experience. I, you know, I think, first of all, there's that important piece of what is the starting place? Boundary. What is it? How do I know? How, how do I know who I am? You know, and values is a great starting place. And as you said it, you know, um, in a lot of, in your social media posts on Instagram, I, I see a lot of that language there, that there are lots of uh, great lists, values lists that just at least give a starting place. You know, there are so many, but at least it gives individuals a starting place to see which ones resonate, which ones are the top values. So I think that's an important piece and that will give language to communicate to others. But the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about and reading in the literature is how you know, especially if somebody has a history of people pleasing, mm-hmm. you know, and they have a particular temperament that um, is more geared that way, where I think the tendency is to want to wait for a situation to take care of itself. Mm-hmm. You know, gosh, could it take care of itself so that so that I don't have to have any conflict or I don't have to do this hard thing and and be assertive and speak my truth. I'm just kind of hoping I'm going to wait that, that the situation takes care of itself. And as we all know firsthand, it doesn't typically take care of itself. And, and that can look differently in different situations. If you're in a position of leadership at work and there's an employee, you know, that is that, that there are problematic things going on and you're having a hard time asserting that, you're hoping the situation takes care of itself. Of course, it can become disastrous. So I think one key is, is there a way to kind of click those boundaries in sooner and be more proactive, which is not easy, uh, not easy. And then the second thing, I think it's nice to give people a heads up when we're doing boundaries work that, you know, if you have this history of, if you have this pattern of people pleasing and you are now ready, you have the skills acquisition, you know what to do, you're prepared and you're going to break the pattern of people pleasing, it can feel really bad. You know, so I say in the book, it's my own example. It can feel like robbing a bank, you know? And, and so it, just if people can remember that it, that it feeling so bad doesn't mean the boundary's wrong. It just means that you're breaking an old pattern mm-hmm. and to keep doing it, to keep going. And by the way, sometimes it, it also could feel a little bit bad because maybe you're new at boundaries and you overcorrected a little, that's mm-hmm. okay. You know, but but just that I have found with clients is such an important piece to know ahead of time so that when they do have the boundary and it feels really horrible, they don't think like it was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. It's like, oh, no, it, I, I was prepared for it to feel this way. I'm just I'm breaking an old pattern. The boundary wasn't wrong. I'm breaking an old pattern. And this is what it can feel like. What a beautiful and compassionate way to build in some expectancy around what mm. can be coming along the line when we do things differently. Um, so rather than heading down the shame spiral, we're able to then use some resources and some skillfulness mm-hmm. around that so that we can understand our experiences from a different perspective and stay with it. Yeah, thank you. Well said. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have... I have so enjoyed this conversation in so many ways. And um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is what are you most hoping that parents will get from raising body positive teens? What is your, yeah, what's your greatest hope? I think our greatest hope, Fiona, is some of what I mentioned earlier. Um, We're so hopeful and and I think the timing is right. You know, Uh, maybe things had to get worse before they get better. And I think we have an incredible opportunity right now to do a lot of healing with our relationship to food and body. So our hope is to cultivate more of a friendship with food and body. And our hope is that like I said, the, you know, that the book gives people a reference point 
and increases their awareness to even have an idea of what that would look like and to start planting some seeds, you know, to, to think about the ways that they might want to be different, thinking differently, behaving differently, acting differently as it relates to their, their own relationship to food and body, which is, you know, the place where we have most of the power, right? We don't, we don't necessarily have power in other places so that we can extend it outward to, to our teen and to our family. There are so many important sections in this book, which I just wanted to mention, you know, my experience reading it, which was so, so wonderful. So I went from beginning to end, but for people listening that are interested, the, what I can let you know is that the book is almost like broken up into chunks so that you don't mm -hmm. have to read it from beginning to end. You could kind of go to a chapter that you prefer. That was my experience. Mm -hmm. um, and what I really liked about it is it didn't rely on you having a particular level of knowledge about anything to kind of just dive straight on in. It was very invitational. It was written so um, clearly and compassionately. And I really feel like you ticked all of the boxes that you possibly could have in a reasonable kind of size book. I can't sure. even imagine the editing involved in this, but it was so beautifully put together that it's such a great resource for, for people's waiting rooms to recommend to a parent who is wanting to really change up their relationship with food mm -hmm. eating and their body to contribute towards, you know, dismantling this, um, you know, uh, the transgenerational tr transmission of, mm -hmm. of diet culture. So yeah, the breaking up of the chapters was a really interesting, I really enjoyed it by the way. Um, Thank you. It, you know, it might not be everybody's cup of tea, but I really, I really, it gave me something new and nourishing every single chapter. Yeah. And, and I do in the, in the first part of the book, you know, is more foundational, but yes, but I agree with you. It felt important to bring in the foundational pieces you know, like, like puberty and what to expect, you know, and, and, and sleep and how foundational yes. sleep is. You know, I just did a, a podcast interview with a sleep expert at the Henry Ford um, Sleep Center. And she had this great quote, you know, she said, we cannot have a conversation about mental health without sleep having a seat at the table. And so that. sleep, right? Sleep is so foundational as it relates to our food and our body image for that matter and um, exercise. And anyway, so yeah, the first part is more foundational and then it goes more into the food and then ends with things like body image, boundaries, and even social media. So um, thank you for taking the time to read the book because um, yeah, I, I know that our time is limited, you know, speaking of the, the culture of busyness, right? I appreciate you reading the book. Yeah, of course. No, it was my absolute pleasure. So speaking of, it is coming out very shortly. So as we're recording, it is the beginning of November. Um, right. And I, well, I'm hoping to have this out launched into the world, maybe when the book is launched. So tell For us sure. a little bit about what, what we can expect in terms of timing. Oh, sure. So the the timeline, we think that the timeline is that the pre-order date might even be in the middle of November or late November Ooh. 2021. Yay. And, um, and, and again, that's with Jessica Kingsley Publishers in London. They also have a U.S. office. And uh, the actual book will be out in print in our hands in March 2021. So it is, it's coming pretty quickly. Yeah, it all happens. Yeah. It, it, it seems slow there for a while and then it just bang, bang, bang. It all kind right. of happens. Right, exactly. It, yeah, it's happening, right? They were approaching the holidays and here it goes, you know, yes. so it'll be here before we know it, but we're really excited. Yeah, that's super cool. And is there a website or a, or a place that people can find out more about you um, and about the book? Yeah, and that that's a good idea because I think that if the pre if people have an interest in the forthcoming book, they could also just send me an email and I can make sure that they get on a list to send to Jessica Kingsley. Right. And the website is www.signa, which is S I G N E, Darpinian, which is kind of fanatic.com. And it's pretty I'm pretty easy to find because the name, you know. Yeah. 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 And so sending I, me a note would be great. Yeah, that's so wonderful. So uh, for anybody who's curious, um, I, I definitely would recommend it. It's um, it's yeah, just written so beautifully by three highly experienced 
um, wonderful writers, you know, for you're all clinicians, but you're all wonderful writers as well. So, um, so huge congratulations, Signa. It really is just such a, a wonderful gift to the world. It really is. Well, thank you, Fiona. And it's been such a nice conversation today. I could talk about boundaries for hours. I know. It's so fun. It's such a, yeah, it's such an underreported topic too, right? It, it needs more attention. So that was a lot of fun. I'm so glad that it ignites you as well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one of my faves. Yeah. Yes. Signa, thank you so much for your time, your energy, your wisdom, and everything that you bring to the world. You, you truly are a gift. The book is a gift and you are a gift. Um, please send all our best to uh, Wendy and to Shelley as I well. Sure will. And um, really look forward to sharing this um, with our communities. I sure will. Thank you, Fiona. I have the utmost respect for you and the work that you do. And thank you for having me today. You're more than welcome. Thanks, Signa. Bye-bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone. 